um, her skill at that in the piano is um, is always evident. But wow, <laughs> that was amazing. Um, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the Book of Psalms. We're going to be uh, spending uh, some time with uh, uh, the Songbook of the Old Testament. And we're in Psalm 95. It's interesting how the Lord has plans that are greater and more effective than our own. You know, I had planned on preaching this uh, sermon two weeks ago, actually three weeks ago, three Sundays ago, whatever, I'm not good with math, um, or dates evidently, but um, yeah, so I had planned on this a while ago and put down everything and who knew that my life was going to take such a weird change um, so quickly. And so the last couple Sundays and weeks, I've really had the opportunity to spend some time uh, looking at Psalm 95 in a slightly different way. As um, I really didn't want to go beyond that. I didn't want to think about weeks to come. I just wanted to really focus on, um, on this. And so this has been a really unique gift that the Lord has given to me um, in Psalm 95. And so this starts a new series. We were going to be uh, doing this about, about once every other year. I don't know if you guys notice. I know Dan keeps track because he's really good about, about writing everything down and, and detailed every sermon I preach. Um, and so uh, uh, those of you that do that, then you probably recognize But every other year I try to delve into the spiritual disciplines as we begin to look at uh, what life should look like as we walk with Christ and some of the tools that we need to be able to do that closer walk with God. And so this year is no different than any other year. I just uh, put it in a different place. Normally I do it in the spring, um, but now we're looking at the fall. And we're going to be doing uh, the next several sermons will be over habits, spiritual disciplines. And the first habit or spiritual discipline we want to talk about was worship. Uh, we felt like this was uh, the best uh, way to start. And, you know, when you think about it, and, and, you know, when I was looking at this from my own particular perspective in, in the life and the events that have been happening with me, uh, when times get difficult and struggle, it's not a time to pull away from worship. It's a time to draw closer in our worship with God because worship really doesn't, worship is, is, is more than just coming here on Sunday morning, singing a few songs, hearing somebody speak saying a few eloquent prayers that people talk about, dropping money in an offering plate and going off to eat in a different place every week. That's not worship. That's just an event that we happen to do on Sunday morning. Worship is, is something that is, is so transformative in our life. It, it draws in uh, from our very basic understanding of what it really means to love and revere God on a minute-by-minute basis. Worship is something that extends from the beginning of the moment we wake up to the moment we fall asleep. And those of you that have disciplined dream habits, even when you dream, you can still worship. Um, and you say, well, how can you say that? Well, look at, look at some of the great prophets and, and people in the Old Testament and the New that received visions and dreams while they slept of God doing great and mighty things. I mean, think of the wonderful father uh, uh, or adopted, adopted father of Jesus, uh, Joseph, who had some of the greatest dreams any human being can have, um, where angels came and visited him. Even in our sleep time, we can dedicate it in worship to God if we're, if we're disciplined. So this morning, as we look at this, I'm just going to read through this psalm. Actually, I'm going to read the first half. We'll get to the second half in a, mo- in a moment. 
But allow the words to just wash over you as you begin to see the psalmist writing this, these wonderful words to us. It says, Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is, is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it is he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand today if you would hear his voice. I'm going to stop there for a second because the psalm really divides itself into two sections with verse 7 being that pivotal junction between the beginning and the, and the end of the song. And as we look at this song of praise, it just starts out, this is the essence of what worship is. It begins with that praise. It begins with that, that prayer. You know, worship in this particular psalm is, is, is sort of typifies this, that worship in, in this psalm is, is, is more of an invitation to draw closer to God. It's an opportunity for us to draw into God and then receive what he has for us. You know, in the Old Testament, if you look in the beginning, it says, uh, Come, let us sing and shout for joy to the Lord. Uh, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. It's interesting when it says to sing and to shout. You look at these words and you look at the way that, that, um, that God has placed them in front of each other as far as singing and shouting. In the Old Testament, oftentimes, the volume of your voice indicated the earnestness and passion that you had within your worship and your heart. So if you were closer to God, you shouted louder. If you were further from God, you mumbled, right? And so it makes you wonder in our day and age with all the technological enhancements that we have with our microphones and everything to allow us to project without actually projecting, but yet we still want to be heard. We still want our voices lifted up. And you wonder, the songs that we sing the loudest that mean the most to us are the ones that we're most passionate about. If you think about that during the course of the week, now I'm not just talking about here because we know when you come here, you guys all sing. Isn't that right, Phil? They all sing with all the gusto and, the, and, the, and the, the loudness that we can, you know, it just sort of, I know sitting up here sometimes you almost have to step back because of the blast of the earnestness from your worship, right? Because um, it's, it's, everybody's vibrant, we're awake, we've had three or four cups of coffee, we're ready to go, usually, you know. And, but if you think about during the week, what songs do you sing the loudest? Where do you sing the loudest? Is it the shower? Is it the car? Is it when no one else is around? Is it when people are around? Are you doing it to irritate folks? Or are you doing it because you really want to sing, right? But, you know, we all have those favorite songs. We all have that favorite music that just, that, that, that when it comes on, you crank it, you know? You just turn the radio up and you just let it go. Whatever that song is, the next time it comes on the radio, the next time your mind goes in that place, take a moment before you open your mouth and sing and ask yourself, what does the song that I'm singing really mean? It will change the way you look at how you sing because it may not be a song that brings glory and honor to God. It may not be a song that draws you closer to Him. And that's something you need to think about. Where is our worship being extended towards? You see, we worship every single day. 
Life is already an expression of worship. Every time we draw breath in and exhale, every time we move from one place to another, every time we exhibit signs of life, we are worshiping. The real question we have to ask ourselves is, what are we really worshiping? Are we really worshiping the God who created us, or are we worshiping something else? You see, idolatry is something that creeps in and you have to be very careful about. And so this is what the psalmist is trying to encourage us. He says, we serve a God that's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of us being able to give to him. Look in verse 2 where it says, let us worship. Let us sing. Let us praise him. And then he answers the the question that's already forming in the minds of many. Why? Why? Why should we praise this God? Because he is great. Because he's above all other gods. Because he created the entire universe. Because everything that is belongs to him. And he formed us with his hands. And then you see in verse 6, as they wrap that back up, it says, let us worship. Let us come and worship him. You know, it's a beautiful expression and phrase when you start thinking about it. But when you start looking at worship, there's really no unique way that we can worship God that no one else has. I think sometimes we've actually gotten away from what worship is. We've made it much more easy and useful. I was thinking as we were, as Phil was praying right before we came in, and I was thinking to myself, you know, my natural in- inclination is to, is to bow my head and, and, and do what everybody does. You know, we teach our kids to do that. How do we pray? We, we clasp our hands. We bow our heads. We, we do the basic, um, basic prayer uh, model that we do. I remember talking to one young lady who refused uh, to bow her head um, and pray. She, and she refused to close her, uh, close her eyes. I'm thinking, well, that's kind of weird. In fact, she actually lifted her head up and, and looked towards the sky. Her thought was, why would I want to look at my shoes when I'm praying to the creator of the universe? Um, maybe I should look up. I mean, however, there's no unique posture, I don't think. Not anymore. We've gotten much away from that. See, what it really comes down to is, is we are in a situation, a unique situation, where we don't have a restriction to our access to God. And our relation to, to God is, is an intimate, personal thing. That the, as a Christian, we don't have to come to a church to worship. We don't have to come to a temple. We don't have to look to a, a, a small location because we take the temple of Jesus Christ with us everywhere we go. Jesus lifts us beyond buildings, beyond locations, beyond events. And pays us the ultimate compliment of making us his temple, his dwelling place, by being able to say that where we go, he goes with us. And I think even today, as he is sitting in the temple that is our soul, is our heart, I wonder if Jesus is tempted to turn over the money changers once again. When he attended the temple in physical location in Jerusalem, he was frustrated, disgusted, irritated. And if you start looking at our own hearts as the temple that God dwells in, are there things in there that he would wish to tip over? Are there idols and other things that have taken place? Have we turned our own soul into a marketplace of lust and greed and wealth or desires for things that are not of God? What would he turn over in our lives if we were to turn our thoughts into our own hearts. You know, I think about those things when I think about worshiping and how we worship. 
Jesus has really given us a unique opportunity to come into his presence and truly love him in a way that no other generation really has. We have everything at our fingertips. There is no excuse anymore not to know, not to need, not to want who Jesus is. We need to ask ourselves, what are we doing with this knowledge that God has given us? As you look at this, he says, great is the Lord. He is above all the gods. But verse 6, you see a change in the tone. He says, let us bow down, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Now, this is um, an interesting concept. In the last couple, last year or so, we've had some odd thoughts and ideas about what it means to kneel. Um, if you've been following the news or the politics of the day, you know that everybody has their own thoughts and processes and what it means to take a knee. But I think when you look at it in Scripture, it is something that we ought to talk about because we don't kneel nearly enough. And I think at times we kneel for the wrong reasons. But we are encouraged to worship, change our posture. You know, if worship gets old, and I get this all the time, you know, and this is one of the challenges we have with a multi-generational church. And we do have, for the most part, a multi-generational church, although it's skewed to one side more than the others at times, and I get that. But this is the challenge that every pastor has, is we want to give honor to our elders and not feel like they're being left behind or having to sacrifice their history, their traditions, and where they are in order to allow the young to feel more comfortable. But in the same respect, our elders don't want the place to be a church where only elders come and their grandkids can't be welcome. So there needs to be a give and take, but that's that fine balance we walk through. And I know Phil and Kendra and the rest of them, when you're choosing music, it's always a challenge, you know? It, do we, how many hymns do we put in? How, how, how far back do we reach into the history of our, of our musical church? And how far forward do we want to grasp before we get lost in either one side or the other? It's, an, it's a difficult balance to walk as we seek to worship God. But I think what you see here in this psalm is the idea that change is part of how we are. And if worship becomes old or tired, then maybe we need to change it up. Those of you that know me over the years, you know that I've had various different diets. I've lost weight and gained weight. Sometimes I fast, sometimes I don't. And, and this just happens as part of what I, where I am. And the one thing I've noticed in the times that I've been dieting or whatnot, is sometimes you'll hit a plateau. You'll hit a level where you just, it, no matter what you're doing, it, it doesn't change. And so, and for me, there's it's these weight points, you know, like 200 pounds is like, a, is for me, it seems to be like this plateau. I'll hit there and then I'll stick there for like a week or so. And it always frustrates me because I'm tempted to say, well, that's it. I've lost all that my body will let me lose, and I'm just going to forget this whole diet, right? I'm just going to go off and go and do my own thing. But yeah, there you go, brother. But you know, that's the worst thing to do, right? That you don't want to do that because what your body is doing is readjusting. It's getting used to that, and you're getting in that static spot waiting for the next whatever it is you're going to do, either go down or go up. And you're at that static spot. And what I found that works the best is not so much going away from it, but do something different to shake it up a little bit. Do something a little more um, odd. And so when you're getting into your worship, if worship becomes rote or old or tired, then maybe we ought to do something to shake it up. If we go back to what it said in the very beginning where it says to shout and to sing, you know, I don't think we shout and sing nearly loud enough. I don't think we're singing the way that God really wants us to. You know, the word that he uses in that first, that first part of it is, is a word that means to sing with instruments, to sing with passion, to sing with, with, with more than just our voice. 
So maybe we need to step it up a little bit. Maybe we need to add a tambourine. I know that, that shakes some of our Baptist uh, beliefs. You know, do we, do we really do that? I remember one time, the first time that ever happened, um, we were in a, Sandy tells the story better than I do. Um, but, you know, Sandy always says that she's a, she's a Baptist by marriage. She's not really Baptist. She's more Bapticostal. And so she t- tends to... to you know, I guess, can you do that? She tends to draw some of that in. She likes the, in, the excitement. And we had this guest speaker that came, and, and he, he was, um, was uh, African-American and um, uh, definitely had that culture and that feeling. And, and he came, and he was preaching in our church, and he brought his wife and his whole music team with him because he couldn't, he couldn't just come and preach. He had to bring everything, right? So he just overtook the, the service. And Sandy got so moved that she went into our music closet that hasn't been opened in a long time, and she pulled out like a tambourine and a maraca. And she was back there banging that tambourine and shaking the, the, the shaker. And I'll tell you, it was one of the most weirdest and craziest, but yet most intense worship times I've had in years. But I tell you, from that point on, our church at that moment sort of used that energy that we had from there for like almost a year or so afterwards. It like fed and fueled much of our worship. Sometimes we need to shake it up a little bit. Sometimes we need to get a little crazy with maybe a tambourine. We're not too crazy, right? We don't want to go, Phil, we don't want to, we got crazy but yet contained, you know, trust but verify. We'll go just far enough but not too crazy. We might even, yeah, we might even wave our hands a little bit. That might be fun. But we got we to gotta tone it down because we are Baptists. We got to remember who we are, right? So, but maybe we go the other way. Maybe instead of going really crazy, maybe we can go quiet and introspective. Maybe we can slow down. Maybe we come before the Lord. And we put our face in the ground. You know, that's what this is saying. You're changing our posture. You know, when we, when we kneel and bow down before the Lord, it's different. In our culture, again, we made it easy. We bow our heads, right? There are other cultures that when they worship and they bow, they really bow. I mean, they go all the way down to the ground and face on the carpet. If they can go even lower, they would. Bowing is something that is, is difficult for us in our culture. We are an independent people. We like to do things and we like to be able to feel like we've accomplished something because it's, it's, it's ingrained in who we are. Truth is, there are many times that we can't get through things on our own and we need to bow before the Lord. We need to ask Him to hold us, to lift us, to move us forward. Bowing down is a form of submission. We don't do that to God near enough. We're talking about worship here, right? Worship is more than just singing songs. Worship is submission, right? It's putting ourselves in a place of saying, God, it's not my will, but your will be done. The greatest, the greatest description of worship that's ever happened in Scripture is when Jesus Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was bowing his head before the Holy God, his Father, and he said, not my will, but yours be done. This is what This is what worship is. This is the essence of it. But there's also something else, too. You notice that the psalmist uses two words, and he doesn't, you know, I find that God doesn't always do this just for the heck of it. There's always reasons why he puts his um, things in in, in his word. And so it says, let us worship and bow down. And then he says, let us kneel before the Lord. It's it's not just a repetition phrase. This is a two-part thing here. One is bowing down. One is submission. The other one is subservience. Kneeling is something altogether different. We started to talk about it a moment ago. We're going to go even further into it now. See, kneeling is, is almost always deployed as a sign of deference or respect to something else. We know there was a time in our culture, in our history, uh, as Americans and beyond, that 
We would kneel before kings and queens. Now, we don't do that anymore. When the president shows up, nobody takes a knee. But when the Queen of England shows up, they still do. It's a sign of deference and respect. And if you think about it, we still do have moments in our culture where we kneel. Typically a man, in the, at least in the olden days, I don't think they still do that. Mike, you're going to have to sh- tell me. I don't know if the kids are doing this this day. But, but typically when, we, when, when, when a man wants to marry a woman, he takes a knee, right? He takes a knee because he doesn't know what she's going to say. And it's almost like a, it's an act of, of deference and respect. It's also an act of uh, a little bit begging, please make my life better than it is. I can't live without you. Please don't say no. I'm going to offer this token of respect, this little bit of a ring that I've been able to purchase. You know, please, please marry me. You know, we, sometimes we kneel to get down on the level of a child when we're trying to look him eye to eye. Kneeling is something we still do in this culture. But I think we've lost what it really means. See, kneeling, in many ways, is a request for protection for somebody greater than ourselves. When we take a knee before our holy God, we're saying, we can't do this without you. We are submitting ourselves to you. We are seeking your guidance. But the beautiful thing about it is, kneeling is not bowing. There's a difference. Kneeling is, we are taking one knee, we are going down, and we are waiting for instructions, right? The reason why we only take one knee is because as soon as the instructions are given, we want to be able to get up and do it. This is the knee that, so we have submission by bowing down, we have subservience by kneeling. So when we kneel, we're saying, God, Tell us what we need to do. What is our marching orders? When we come in here to worship and we take a knee, we, take, we bow down, we are asking God to give us our marching orders for the week. I grew up, as many of you know, in an Episcopalian Catholic kind of church, and, and uh, those, that world is just different. But the one thing I always thought was unique about that, um, uh, that liturgical faith is every pew, every pew has its own little kneeling rack, Right? It has its own little bar that comes down. And some of the fancier churches, not the churches I went to. I always went to the small, tiny Catholic churches, and they, they couldn't afford anything, really. Um, but the fancier ones have, like, cushions. They have their own little cushion. Tom, did you have the cushions when you did? Oh, yeah. So if, if sometimes it feels like rote, like church aerobics. You know, you, you stand, kneel, sit, stand, kneel, sit, stand, kneel, sit. And you needed the cushions because you're going to be down there often, and, and sometimes you have to get down. But, you know, it's just a beautiful response as you're sitting there. And our church was always kind of a weird way of doing this, but they always seem to roll from the sitting to the kneeling to the standing. So we didn't, have to, we didn't have to go from standing to kneeling. That was too far of a fall. But we would sit and we'd just rock forward right into that nice cushion pad that was there. Now, we as Baptists, we don't have that. But I'm thinking maybe we ought to. I remember I was at a small um, Baptist church in, in northern New York uh, many years ago. Um, I was asked to preach, and it was a church that had been taken over. They, it was a Baptist church that had taken over a former Catholic church, which, you know, I love when that happens. You know, it's, it's like the light of truth comes in, and woo! Anyway, I probably shouldn't say that. Probably shouldn't say that. But either way, it, we were there, and these, they still had the same pews that were there, and they didn't use them nearly as much. But there was, I, found, I thought it was interesting. You know how in these older churches where um, you have stable membership and the members have been there for many, many years? And this is the case in that church. I think the youngest person there, besides Sandy and myself, was my father, who was um, at the time 65. And so, and he was the young, the young, young one in the church. Um, but I noticed in this one little section over the side where um, a lot of the widows tend to sit, that their areas 
and were much more comfortable. The, this, the, the, the cushions on the pews were, had been added to with memory foam and, and other stuff. It was well cushioned, but I also noticed that the kneeling area, even in the Baptist church, was extra padded. And I saw for the first time, I'd never seen this in a Baptist church, but in that church, these guys, when we said pray, even those old ladies that were, when they were, I shouldn't say the elder ladies of character and dignity, um, as, as, as the pastor asked them to pray, many of them, if they could, would slip forward onto those kneeling racks and pray. It's a beautiful thing. I'm not saying you guys should do that, but we ought to think about it. We ought to think about our posture and how we pray to the Lord and what it means to truly, truly get down and kneel. Now you notice here that the psalmist is beginning, he's building up to something. He knows that there is a problem within the church. He knows there's a problem. And I, I see it in our own church. I see it in our own culture. I see it in, in church life in America. And I know that most of us do. And we see this. We know that we are his people. That's why we are here. It says in verse 7, he is our God and we are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. He is ours. And then he, he, he utters this word. He said, today if you would hear his voice. Now, in the New American Standard, there's a comma there because they don't want you to stop. They just want you to pause. And then we take a step forward. He says, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as at the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, when they tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and, they say, and said that they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly, they shall not enter into my rest. It's interesting on a discussion of worship that the psalmist felt necessary, the Holy Spirit felt necessary to go into a time of warning. And I think this is something that every church needs to face. We talk about rote and, and, and locking ourselves into a, into a comfortable form of worship. And sometimes we need to shake it up. But the reality is we need to make sure that when we're worshiping him, we're worshiping him for the right reasons. Right. We're not coming into this presence because it's what we always do. I titled this sermon, Being, Doing, and Having, because we've talked about this idea in the past about doing church or having church, but ultimately we want to be church, right? And so we don't come together on Sunday morning to have church. We don't come on to Sunday morning because we're doing church. We come to Sunday morning because it's an extension of being church all week long. And so the, the psalmist knows that this is a danger within our culture because there's always things coming to, into our lives, into our presence, trying to distract us from what God has called us to do. Notice in verse 8, he says, do not harden your hearts. And he mentions two different things, Meribah and Massa. These are times in the Old Testament. I know some of you biblical scholars that are well-versed in the Old Testament. I know Gary loves the Old Testament. He's, he spent quite a bit of time in there. And, and I know he already is thinking, I know exactly where that's at. But for the rest rest of us, like Dan, that, you know, we're still trying to, you know, work through some of the Old Testament struggles. And I get you there. There's some, there's some tough things to read in the Old Testament. We should, but there's still some tough things. Well, this was a time when the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness and they got frustrated. They actually said, Moses, what did you do? Did you bring us out here to die? How can we survive the desert without water? How can we survive the desert without the basic necessities of life? And they were ready to revolt. Many of them were, well, they were always on the verge of going back to, um, back to Egypt, but the many 
Miriam were like, we should just go back. It's better to die under the slave master's whip than it is to die here in the desert without water. And, and so they were really just testing God's helpfulness. This word, these Meribah and Masa, were words that were, became used by the, um, by the Old Testament Jews after, the, um, uh, the, after being drawn out of Israel or out of, out of Egypt as a, as a symbol for uh, trials and testings. We shouldn't harden our hearts when the trials and the tribulations come. That's the time when we should move closer to God. This is what God is trying to do. You know, he doesn't, we talked about in Sunday school, God doesn't bring these trials into our life because he hates us. He brings these trials, allows these things to happen to us because he wants us to become better than we are. He's tempering us. He's treating us in a way that only we can be treated so that we can become who he wants us to be. And that's the beauty of where God is bringing us, where we are. So when trials and tribulations, and I hear this all the time, why did my car break down? Why did my arm break? Why did my, why did my dog run away? We all have these trials and frustrations, and we ask ourselves, why does this happen to us? And we can fall into the trap of saying, well, obviously God hates me. You know, I got that letter from my daughter, and you guys remember a couple years ago when she was struggling in boot camp, and she didn't know what was, was going to happen, and she got hurt, and she's sitting there in the, in, the, in, the, in the waiting facility, not knowing whether or not they were even going to let her graduate, and she said to me, she goes, sometimes I think God hates me. You know, that's, and I had an opportunity to be able to speak into her life and to, to share with her that God doesn't hate her. God has something great for her. Great, so great, in fact, that she needed this time of reflection and healing and preparation for what is going to happen ahead of us. I know some of you guys are looking at the trials in your life and you're thinking to yourself, well, God must really expect an amazing amount from me because of all that I've gone through. You know, maybe not. Honestly, maybe you go through all these trials and tribulations and your life doesn't really change a whole lot from what it is. Maybe you just keep moving forward and you just keep your head down, keep doing what you're doing, and in the, in the moment that you really get to see it shine is the day you take your last breath and step into glory. Maybe that's the moment that, that God has prepared you for. But you know, the thing is, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Him working through us to glorify himself. And you may not see any appreciable difference in your life through the trials and tribulations. And you may go through this life and say, everything is a struggle for me. Everything is a frustration for me. But you don't know who's watching you. You don't know the people around you. You don't know the impact that you are having by simply saying, through it all, I am going to serve my God. There's a precious power in that. And when people look at your life and they say, there is a peace that is in you that I don't understand, but I need. You know, there's going to be a day when you do step into glory. And there are going to be people there you're going to meet. The Bible says we are going to be known as we are known. Now, I don't really understand that phrase too much. The only way I can describe this in my mind is that when we get there, people are going to know everything about me. I'm going to know everything about them. They're not going to hate me. But the ones that know me or are there because of something I've done, said, or lived in front of them, they're going to come and say thank you. They're going to meet me. They're going to spend time with me. And that's going to be a precious time. God talks about this. He talks about the trials and the frustrations. He talks about in verse 11 about this rest. He said, truly, they shall not enter into my rest. 
In the coming weeks, we're going to talk a little more about what that rest really means, about what heaven's going to look like, what it means to truly rest in God. But I keep coming back to verse 10. Verse 10 is that, that verse, and we're going to come close to our closing here. I say close to the closing because I'm not ready to close yet, but I want to give Tony the opportunity to feel like that uh, I'm proving you're accurate that when a pastor says in closing, we have 20 more minutes. Um, so I don't think we have 20 more minutes, but we're, get, we're going to get there. We're going to get there, but we get close to the closing. How's that? You know, when we look at the word loathing there, and the New American Standard says loathing, King James says grieving, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's odd and not often that the King James, New American Standard, English Standard Version, the, some of the big ones that are word-for-word translations where they, they, are, they disagree. And in English, there is an obvious disconnect between the word loathing and grieving. We know this. There is one word that's being used by, the, by, by God in this. And it's a word that's only used seven times in the Old Testament. The word, I think, is, is pronounced quat. Don't quote me on that. Quat. I can't spell it. It's in Hebrew. So it's weird. It's like, and there's no consonants. I'm sorry, Mike. Just, I mean, there's no vowels. I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult. Anyway, so this word is only mentioned, it's only used three times in the entire Old Testament. Three times, or seven times. Three times it's used as loathing. Three times it's used as grieving. And one time it's used for something altogether different. And so we really don't know exactly what this word fully means. But I feel like God is taking me down a road of grief that I have not yet experienced. I feel like I'm coming into an area where I'm becoming more acquainted with it than ever before. And when I hear the phrases like Jesus, where Jesus is a, 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 a man that grieved, you know, a man that understood what it meant to grieve, I, I, I can see that grieving is not just what we think of it in, in terms of we're at a funeral, we bow our heads, we cry a little bit, we feel some grief and sadness, we move on. Grieving is a much more complex and deep emotion that we as a culture have refused to even touch or talk upon. And you see that with our kids growing up. When a, when a young man or a young girl comes to their parents and they say, oh, I'm so sad, the love of my life just left me, and you're looking at them and they're like, you're 12. What do you know about love, right? And so we just automatically pass it off. And we, we teach our, but you see, the bad part when we do that is we don't take it for granted. Yes, they don't know anything about love, but everything they do know about love in the 12 years that have brought them to that place has led them to the point where they feel an utter loss beyond their way of expressing it at that moment in their life. And we're at a point as parents and as adults where we can either pass it off and say, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't under know what grief is. You don't know what loss is. You don't know what love is. Or we can take them at where they're at. We can kneel down and look them in the eye and we can say, you know, I don't, I don't know if you completely understand what you're going through, but let me help you walk through it. You see, grief is something greater than that. Oftentimes we just say, ah, don't worry about it. There's plenty of fish in the sea. Oh, don't worry about it. Let's go shopping. Oh, don't worry about it. Here's an ice cream cone. Oh, don't worry about it. We, we, dis, we, we deflect. We disparage. We, we, do, we push aside. We stuff down. We, we replace it with something else instead of just walking through that moment of grief with our children and teaching them. And so what that means is we get to be adults and we don't understand it. And so when we see a word like this in the, in the Old Testament word where it clearly says that God is, is something. He's either loathing or grieving for that generation, right? And we don't know what it means. And so we, 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 we don't know how to really translate this because our life experience doesn't give us what we need. But the truth of the matter is, I can see the depth of sadness that was in the heart of God as he walked with the children of Israel. He displayed his greatness to them time and time again. I mean, you can't 
deny what he did for the children of Israel. The pillar of cloud and fire, the destruction of Pharaoh's army, the food that came down from heaven, the quails that showed up every dawn, the water that rushed out of the rock, the fact their shoes didn't wear out, their kids hardly got sick. When the serpents came and bit them, they were able to look at a symbol in the sky and get healed. Every time they turned around, God was constantly displaying his acts of greatness in front of them, and they still were grumbling, complaining, and walking away. Still, Moses walks away for a few days, and they throw some gold in a fire, and out comes a calf. I mean, and they start worshiping this golden idol. Still, they do this crazy stuff. I can see the depth of sadness in the heart of God. You can see it when Jesus, staring out over the city of Jerusalem, he says his soul is twisted up inside at this generation. He longs to wrap his arms around them as, ch- as a mother hen around her chicks. You know, this is what Jesus talks about. This is the grieving that is having place. He looks at this generation and he feels sadness. You say, well, I know, I feel bad for those Israelites too. Yeah, it's easy to do that, right? Because they're just so foolish and stupid. They don't really know what they had in front of them. It's obvious to us. I mean, if God came down in a pillar of fire and cloud this morning and we were able to worship him, we would react so much differently, wouldn't we? Yeah, no. No, we wouldn't. Because that generation is the same as this generation. We have our toys and our tools and we have our things that distract. We have the things that we like to do and we have the places we like to go. And oftentimes they're not things that are godly and not things that represent who we are as Christians. And I know it because we all do it. How many times do we go to a movie that's questionable? And this is a small town, right? We have two movie theaters, Right? And, and usually the way they work it out, there's usually like one movie that's being played. And, and so if you want to go see that movie, it's only going to be in one place. And you know the times are. And how many times you sat in the movie theater and you sort of look around and you're wondering, I wonder if there's anyone from the church here, you know? And, and maybe it's because you want to know, hey, I wonder if they're seeing it, you know? Or maybe you're wondering, you're hoping that there is no one from the church there because you don't want them to see you there, right? You know? But the beauty is we don't have to go to movie theaters anymore. We can go to Redbox. We can rent them, go to our home, be as private as we want to. Truth is, the things we set before our eyes are questionable. Things that we do aren't quite right. And we ask ourselves, where is God in all this? So when we're talking about worship, we have to look at the dangers. Because we don't want to be like the Israelites. We don't want to be like those people who erred in our hearts, who wanted to be barren and busy, but not truly filled with the Spirit of God. And we have to worry that maybe, we have to be concerned about this, that maybe the anger of God will rise against us. And there may be people, even in this room, who have been in this building for decades, that will leave this life and walk into heaven, and God will say, I never knew you. That's a sobering thought. The apostles tell us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That we should always be concerned about where we've come from and with an eye of where we're going to go. Scripture tells us that we are to worship the Lord with our whole heart, whole mind, whole soul. Jesus gave us two commandments, to love our neighbor and love our God. How are we doing with that? Are we truly worshiping God the way we're called to? Worship is not singing. Worship is not tithing. Worship is not 
adding extensions onto the building. Worship is not hanging speakers. Worship is how we live our daily life in front of God. Now, all that is encapsulated in worship, but it's not the totality of it. We come here to hang speakers because we worship our God. We put money into the offering plate because we are worshiping our God. We sing with our heart and our soul because we are worshiping God, because it's an extension of what our soul is doing. So this morning, I want to encourage you guys, as you're looking at this worship and you're asking yourself, how does this go forward for me today? How do I take what is, a, what is given by the psalmist in this song that's meant to be sung and meant to be, be brought forward? How do I apply this to my daily life? And that's a good question. Now, for me, it's obvious. For me, I think it's, it's something that we need to do on a daily basis. We need to ask ourselves, am I being church today? Am I being church where I'm at? You know, the interesting thing is when you say be church, what does that mean? It means you're the bearer of the gospel, Jesus Christ. Now, we use that word gospel, and I like the word gospel. It rolls off the tongue. It's very nice. But the truth is we use it as a substitute because we don't really want to say what it really is, right? Because what it really is is the good news of what Christ has done in our life, the good news of what Christ has done in the lives of our families and to our friends and the community and our church and everything. It's the good news of where we are. It's that intersection between righteousness and grace, where we live. It's the idea that God went to the cross for our sins because there was no other way for us to get into heaven. But in the same respect, he wanted to be to the cross. Scripture, it says that it pleased God to see Christ on the cross. He pleased him to see him battered and broken and hanging with our sin. And that's something that we have a hard time reconciling because none of us want to see our children suffer. But that's the intersection of righteousness and grace. We needed it. He did it. Because he wanted to, and he had to. It's a weird place. But this is where we are this morning, and you're asking yourself, where is this at? Well, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've never accepted him, if you've never been able to come to that place where you've intersected with grace and righteousness, where you are constantly feeling like there's nothing good about you and nothing good will ever come from your life, you ask yourself, is this where God wants you? No. You're here this morning because he has something better to offer you. He has this grace that's willing to overshadow all of the sin that you have in your life. You know, I love stories. I love tales. We as human beings are episodic in nature. We love to tell stories. We are always telling stories to our families and friends, whether we know it or not. Dan, you're, you're the storyteller extreme. You're like the, the best at it, right? And, and it's amazing how the stories change oftentimes in setting and tone, but we use them to our advantage because we love to share stories. And that's where it is. But the truth of the matter is that once the words are written in our life, we can't really go back and change them. How many times have you heard from somebody, oh, I'd love to go to church, but I'm just not there yet. I'm just not ready to walk in that building. And I even heard one person say, if I walk in there, God's going to either strike me dead or cause the building to collapse, one or the other. And I don't want to do that to you guys. And they just they laugh it off and move on. You know, well, okay. Truth is, though, we can't go back and change the beginning of our story. But we can start where we are today to change the ending. And that's where we're at now. I know that many of us have trials and frustrations. Many of us have been places that we don't want to talk about. I can't change the past, but we can change the ending of our stories. And I encourage you this morning to do that. The altar is going to be open, and that's a great place to start. Many of you are wondering, why did I shave? Why did this ugly fat guy shave? 
You know, it's a question I get all the time. You know, it's funny, uh, little Alyssa, she, 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 she picks on me. She calls me alpaca. And, um, okay, she says, you're not my alpaca anymore. My alpaca was fair, was furry. You're not furry. And, um, yeah, I'm not. But, you know, there are times in our lives where we have to start beginning. We have to start anew. We have to start afresh. There are times when chapters close and new chapters begin. And I think those are the times we mark out as pivotal in our life. Sometimes we do something drastic, like buying a Corvette. I couldn't buy a Corvette. I want to buy a Corvette. No, I, I don't need to buy a Corvette. So I, so I shaved instead. I thought that was a much cheaper and simpler way to do it. But, you know, this is it. We, we, we start anew. We're starting afresh. I can't go and change the past, but I can change the future. That's where I'm at. This morning, God is offering you the opportunity, wherever you are, if you need Jesus, today is the day to start that new, to be able to change the ending for your family and your friends. Maybe you just need a reconnection with Jesus. Maybe you, the worship and the life has become stale and old. You need to change your posture. You need to do something just a little bit different. And that's what the altar is for. You know, these pivotal moments in our lives are what define us. And, you know, we talk, love about, talk about stories. Wouldn't it be amazing that if 10, 15, 20 years from now, you've got the little kids gathered around you, whether they're grandkids or real kids, who knows? And you're telling them the story of the day that it changed. And you say, well, it was around October 7th, 2018. Crazy, half-furry preacher was talking. And I just felt the Spirit of God moving. And I knew that my life needed a change. And that was the day, and you just fill in the blank. Maybe today's the day. The altar is going to be open in a moment, and I encourage you to come. And I encourage you to move as God has asked you to move, wherever it's at. As a Baptist, I just feel like I can't leave here without a giving an offer for someone to come to know Christ. But as a Christian, as a fellow walker in this world, as a griever and as a sadness that you know, seeks to overtake me, I also say, you know, there are other reasons to come to the altar. Whatever your reason is, the altar is open. Healing is being offered. Jesus is waiting, waiting for you to make a decision. Is today going to be the pivotal moment that you change the end of your story. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. We just know that you are filled in our heart and our lives. Lord, we know that you are working in this community. We know you're working in this church. We know we see the lives of the children that you're, infe- you're infecting and, and moving through in this building and beyond. Father, we know that the individuals that keep moving into this fellowship are causing us joy at the newness But Father, we also know that with newness and change comes loss and sadness. Father, whatever the reason is that you would use to draw us to your altar this morning, Father, I ask you to use that. Allow us to change our posture, to put our face before the earth, before you. Allow us to kneel in your presence and be willing to truly praise you with every aspect of our life. Father, as we close our service and as I make the final appeal, Lord, I just ask if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, that they won't leave here today without getting their heart right. That, Father, you'll prevent them with your spirit. You'll draw them to you as only you can, as you wish to see all men saved, but knowing that not all will. And that inherent sadness that you faced, even in the garden, as you knew you were going to the cross to die for mankind, the same mankind that would largely reject you. Father, we recognize that sadness and that grief. Allow us to come beside you this morning.
embrace you, love you, and allow you to bear our burdens that we might be able to move forward with peace and joy, knowing that we've come into your presence as the rock of our salvation. Father, we love you and we thank you. We ask this now in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The altar is open. I encourage you to come. The dividend checks are out. And perhaps some of us went and indulged. Perhaps if you were like my wife and I, we paid off bills. And having listened to Dave Ramsey several years ago, we have become debt-free through his prescribed method. But that was worldly debt. The only debt that will satisfy God's requirement is the debt Christ paid for each of us. If you'll stand. Thank you.